you'd like to follow along this morning, you can open your Bible to Joshua chapter 8. We're studying through the book of Joshua, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Last week, we saw the conquest of the city of Ai. There are five verses now left in chapter 8 that form a section unto themselves, verses 30 through 35. That's our text. The topic there, the Israelites are going to go to Shechem and build an altar and then respond to the word of God as it is read publicly. The title of our message, Altered States of Christianness. Wow. Verse 30. As always, I'm open to every suggestion during the week. Uh, I receive almost no suggestions for titles, so shame on you. Anyway, doing the best I can. Uh, Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. Now, Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel... As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you've brought us to this place. Uh, You've invited us here, really, Lord, and we've said yes to you. And now we want to hear from you through your word. We appreciate the fact that when we gather together, you have promised to be here in a very special way, ministering from heart to heart, building up your saints in their most holy faith, touching the hearts of any unbelievers that might come, revealing to them, Lord, their sin and your righteousness, and the fact that you died to save them and rose from the dead to give them eternal life. Do a big work here today, Lord, in each of our hearts. Uh, Get us centered and focused on you and on the things that are most important in all of our lives. Uh, When we leave here, may we be those who want to go forth as living sacrifices, Lord, serving you moment by moment and day by day until you call us home. We thank you and praise you, and we do it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. The Israelites put the conquest of the promised land on hold for a few days, and they went on a retreat. It was something Moses had commanded them to do once they entered the promised land. Their retreat had two main sessions. The first was to build an altar and offer sacrifices upon it to the Lord. The second session was to read the law of God aloud and respond to it. It isn't mentioned in our text in Joshua chapter 8, but in Deuteronomy chapter 27, you read that over and over as the law was read, and I quote, all the people shall say, Amen. Altar and Amen. Powerful words that have lost some of their significance for us as New Testament believers. We don't sacrifice on altars. 
And our use of amen is usually restricted to an indicator that prayer time has ended. There is more to these words. There's a lot more. Both altar and amen have their place in our lives as New Testament believers. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, stay on the altar and present yourself a living sacrifice. And number two, say amen and purposefully live out your sacrifice. First of all, in verses 30 and 31, stay on the altar and present yourself a living sacrifice. The Israelites journeyed for at least two days, covering about 30 miles to get to the valley between these two mounts. The ground there was called Shechem. It was and would go on to be rich in spiritual history. It was there God first promised the land to Abraham. It was the site of Jacob's well. In the New Testament times, it was where Jesus spoke to the woman of Samaria. Before he died, Moses had commanded the Israelites to go there and conduct this retreat soon after they entered the land. The first order of business was to build an altar for sacrifice. And so let's read verses 30 and 31 again. It says, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord, God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Back in the book of Exodus, the Lord had instructed them to build these types of altars without using tools. Why? The altar was the place of sacrifice for sin, and no human work was to be associated with it, lest sinners think their works somehow contribute to saving them. It was the sacrifice on the altar, not the altar, or what we would call the system, that was important. And, and you know how it is. I mean, it's human nature to want to embellish things, to make things more ornate than they need to be, or to, to just have an opinion about how God wants to be approached. God says, no, I just want a simple altar. It's the sacrifice because it's going to be typical of the fact that Jesus is going to come as God in human flesh and die for the sins of the world. Many years ago, uh, we were in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. And uh, one of the things you do when you're in downtown Tegucigalpa is you go and visit this massive cathedral there in the center of town. Uh, and then you find out a little bit of the history of it. They built it specifically for a visit of the Pope to Honduras. Uh, the actual Catholic church there is down in a little bit of a valley off to the side. It's an old kind of, you know, just very old structure. Uh, and when the Pope decided he was going to visit Tegucigalpa, they immediately had a feeling that this church was no good for him. Uh, they had to have a, a cathedral built. And so uh, in one of the poorest cities, in one of the poorest countries in the world, they poured all their resources into uh, this one-time cathedral, basically, uh, because after the Pope left, they never had another service in it. They all went back to their regular uh, church. Uh, and so that's human nature. I only bring that up to show that's human nature. And so if God says build an altar, I mean, they're going to, you know, really get into this. And so he specifies it's not the altar I'm interested in. It's not your work as a craftsman, a craftsman. It's not the beauty and the ornamentation of the altar. There's nothing you can contribute. It's a place of sacrifice and it's the sacrifice of blood that I'm interested in. Your salvation is a gift from God. It is by his grace and it is received by faith. It's never of any works 
lest anyone should boast. And so faith, uh, the, the equation is always grace by faith plus nothing. Not baptism, not communion, not anything else. Uh, it's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And that's what is being typified in this Old Testament altar at Shechem. Now, God had prescribed many different types of offerings back in the book of Leviticus. At this particular retreat, he specifically asked them to bring burnt offerings and peace offerings. When making a burnt offering, the offerer laid his hands upon the animal identifying with it. It was a token that instead of me getting on the altar... The animal was going to take my place. The animal died in your place and was totally consumed on the altar. The burnt offering looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ to take your place on the cross. He would die, and by receiving him as Savior, you identify with him in his once-for-all sacrifice on your behalf. The peace offering is also in Scripture sometimes called the fellowship offering. One of its unique features that separates it from some of the other offerings is that it was not entirely consumed. Instead, after it was made, there was leftovers and a meal was associated with the peace offering. The burnt offering took care of God's wrath against sin. The peace offering went beyond this. Once God's holy wrath against sin was satisfied, you were at peace with him and you could enjoy fellowship with him, you could have a meal with God. And that's why there was a meal associated with this peace offering. Meals were extremely important in the Bible from a point of view of fellowship. When you read through the Gospels, you realize that Jesus is always being accused of eating with the wrong people. Uh, the, the Pharisees were going crazy all the time because he would eat with, with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and people of, of poor reputation. And, it, and it, was very, it was symbolic to the Jew because they had kind of a common bowl that they would dip into. Only a single dip, by the way. Uh, but anyway, uh, but the idea was that that food that was nourishing me was also nourishing you. And so we were becoming like one another. And, and there was a big symbolism to eating with one another. And you just didn't eat with people that you didn't want to eat with. Jews and Gentiles never ate with each other for that very reason. And so when you're looking at this and you're seeing that, that God accepts your burnt offering and then takes your peace offering, it's a symbol that you're, you're having a meal with God. It's as if you and God are having supper together. And what a beautiful thing that is. Now, the Israelites had literal altars and offered real sacrifices upon them. We see the symbolism. We see the significance in the New Testament era in which we live, and we rejoice. Jesus was our once-for-all burnt offering for sin. Because of him, we have peace with God and enjoy personal fellowship. And so we don't bring our lambs to church on Sunday morning. At the end of the service, we come forward for prayer. We don't bring our animals forward to have their throats slit and blood run out into Dowdy. I think that would be illegal by, uh, for one thing. But, you know, we just don't do that. And I'm grateful for it. But we are never to think we are done with the altar. One of the most powerful passages in all the New Testament places you on an altar. You know where it is. 
after 11 chapters of letting you know just how much God has accomplished for you through Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul begins his application to your Christian walk by saying in Romans 12:1, I beseech you, therefore. In other words, because of everything I've said, because of all the doctrine, because of everything Jesus has done, therefore, by the mercy of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The word present is a technical word that was used of priests presenting their offering in the temple on the altar. And so this presenting is something we are still called upon to do. Not in the temple, not on a literal altar, but it's very real nonetheless. You are to present your body a living sacrifice. In other words, you are to see yourself as if you were constantly on the altar. Like the burnt offering, we are to be totally consumed for God. And like the peace offering, we are to be aware of our intimate fellowship with him. Now, it's often been said that the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps wriggling off the altar. And that's what I would do if I were a literal sacrifice on an altar. Uh, I'd be trying to get away. How many of you saw the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies? I forget which one it is where Captain Jack Sparrow has to wriggle off of the spit as they're trying to cook him alive. And so that, that's what living sacrifices do. They seek to escape. What gets us off the altar? Well, think of how we popularly use the term altar. We talk about people worshiping at various altars. I've, I've heard it said of someone that they worship at the altar of self. And there's other things that we could put in there. And we recognize that there are people and possessions that take God's rightful place in our lives. We sometimes call them idols, but it's the same concept. We, we can say that we're worshiping at the idol or at the altar of this particular idol that's taken the place of God in our lives. And then there's this other application to consider. I think one that is more appropriate uh, to the New Testament Christian. In the Old Testament, the worshiper came with his or her sacrifice in tow. You, you brought your little lamb uh, behind you in tow. It required thoughtful preparation. You had to pick that particular lamb and it had to meet certain uh, standards in order to be acceptable as a sacrifice. And so there was some preparation that went into it. And there was a cost involved. Uh, you know, they, they, that was part of their livelihood and their, their herd and, and offering those animals was very costly. And there was participation in the entire process as you brought the animal forward and participated in, uh, the, the sacrifice as the priest slew it for you. Now today, if you're not careful, you can come as a worshiper with an entirely different and an entirely incorrect perception of worship. It's possible to come to God as a consumer rather than as a participant and look for what you can get from God rather than what it might cost you to serve God. Now, I love our church uh, because we, as I tell you from week to week, we have so many people serving. Uh, higher percentage than I've ever seen in any other church. VBS was fantastically staffed. Uh, we've announced these new ministries that we're going to do, and, and people sign up immediately, count me in, and, and I, it's just a tremendous blessing to me. But just as a general kind of application to all of us, 
all of us can kind of fall in from time to time to a consumer mentality of Christianity. You come into church, and because you don't have your lamb in tow, you don't have to wait in line, you don't have to wonder if the priest is going to accept your sacrifice as a proper sacrifice, you don't have to wonder if he's going to find out it's sick and it's going to die before you get up there, you know, or things like that. And you don't have to watch its throat slit and the blood being drained out and all of the other things going on. We can get a little bit lax in our understanding of what happens when we come to church. And there are times when people have a consumer mentality. Quite honestly, I saw this a lot in our many, many years at the YMCA. Uh, It was tough to go to church at the Y. It's, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. Week after week to set up and tear down and meet in that gymnasium and and wonder if the swamp coolers were really working and and who invented swamp coolers anyway and you know somebody that that obviously lived in Death Valley uh, and didn't care about the heat and and I mean it was just tough and it almost it was almost it was tough. You had to know that you were called to that particular ministry and fellowship to really come there. And, 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 and a lot of people through the years would come and say, you know, we really like the ministry, but it's just really uncomfortable here. At first, you know, we had the hard chairs, the folding chairs. Then we graduated to the soft chairs, but it was just always a little bit uncomfortable there. And, and I don't begrudge anybody, but people would come and say, well, you just, it's just uncomfortable here. Why go here when we could go to a comfortable church? I mean, we love the teaching, you know, we love the ministry, we love the music, we love everything about it, except it's just uncomfortable. And and you know what? I understand that to a certain extent. I understand it on a natural level. I don't understand it on a supernatural level, and here's what I mean. You should find out where God wants you to go to church. that's, That's really the only thing that matters. Where does God want you to go to church? And then you go there. It doesn't matter how comfortable it is or how uncomfortable it is. To a certain extent, it doesn't even matter what your gifts are or your callings are. If that's where God wants you, then you go there and you let God work in your life. We were living in the San Bernardino Mountains. What a beautiful environment that was. And why God called us back down to San Bernardino, I'll never know. But uh, we loved it up there. We moved back down to San Bernardino, my old hometown. We had a choice to make. We could go to Calvary Chapel of San Bernardino, good, solid ministry. Or we could go to Calvary Chapel of Redlands. Now, it might seem like, you know, a no-brainer, except that the two churches were only about five miles apart. They were closer than we are to Lemoore. Uh, and it would have been six of one or half a dozen of the other. We wanted to go to Calvary Chapel of Redlands because our old pastor, Don McClure, was there. Uh, he had left Lake Arrowhead and was down in Redlands. And, and we loved and still love Don. He, he just, wanted, just a guy that I love to be around and uh, listen to expound God's word. And, I mean, it was just a perfect fit. And as we prayed about it, we sensed in that way that you do that the Lord was telling us to go to Calvary Chapel of San Bernardino. And quite honestly, not that there was anything wrong with the ministry there, but we reluctantly went there. And we saw over the years how God used that in our lives to move and direct us and teach us and grow us and things like that. And I'm grateful that at that point in our Christian life, we had the, the wherewithal you know, to, to pray about that. Our, our, they would not have been our choice. And so what I suggest to people is that they really, really consider God's will on these matters. Uh, because we, it's too easy to fall into a consumer mentality and to think, well, I, I would like to go to church there, but it doesn't have all the bells and whistles that, that I'm looking for. It doesn't have this particular ministry that cries out to me right now. Or another thing that happens sometimes 
And if you've done this or said this, I apologize ahead of time. But uh, anyway, sometimes, you know, here uh, over the years, people will come and they'll, they'll, the first time they ever come to church, they'll come up and they'll say, I just want you to know that I'm here and I am a gifted worship leader. Let's pick on worship leaders right now. They'll come first time, never been to church before. I say, I want you to know I'm a gifted worship leader. And uh, of course, the expectation is that, you know, they're going to be leading worship. Well, and I always say, I, I, I kind of say in a nice way, so what you probably are going to notice that we have a lot of gifted worship leaders and a lot of great worship already. Uh, so maybe you'll be on the worship team. Maybe someday you'll lead a worship team. But in the meantime, there's a lot of other great ministry going on. And a lot of times you say, well, oh, okay, well, then I'll go. Do you know any church where I could be a great worship leader? Uh, and, and hey, that's fine. If that's what God's called you to do and be, that's fine. But I think sometimes God wants to do something else. You know, I have ideas about what I would like to do and where I would like to be. I want to be the pastor of Disneyland. <laughs> Just so you'll know, I, I've been trying to figure out how to get them to start a chaplaincy program so that I can be the chaplain of Disneyland. And I'll take as my office the old sky bucket station, uh, you know, uh, that, that I'll just hang out there. But uh, that's my goal. I'm being a little bit facetious, but not too much. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I have ideas. You think I don't have ideas? Everybody has ideas. And then there's the Lord. And so we need to not ever be consumer Christians. When you came to the temple, God did the consuming. You brought your sacrifice. It was you that you were laying on the altar in that sense. And God consumed it. He took it and he did what he wanted to with it. And then he had fellowship with you. Then he would accept your peace offering and you would have intimacy with God. And we lose that in the New Testament because we don't have literal altars. And we should have a greater sense of commitment, not a lessening sense. We should come just wanting so much to be consumed and for God to use us and to, to you know, do this. But it, it, we fall into this mentality. And so don't do that. Stay on the altar. Be more and more consumed by God. Get more and more in fellowship with God. Thoughtfully prepare. Let it cost you time and talent and treasure. Be a participant. On a practical level, that means you may need to go on a retreat. Doesn't need to be a one-day conference or a weekend retreat. Those have their place in your walk from time to time. But I'm talking about going on a daily retreat, perhaps even several times a day. Learn to sense when you've wriggled off the altar, seeking your will and your way rather than God's. And then get back on it, offering all of yourself and then enjoying His fellowship in whatever He's called you to do. Now, there was a second session to the Israelites retreat at Shechem. It's in verses 32 through 35, where you say amen and purposefully live out your sacrifice. Now, we read through these verses in their retreat syllabus. The Israelites were told to plaster the altar so that God's law could be written on it. Again, you find that in Deuteronomy 27. Then they were to divide into tribes for a responsive reading of God's law. I'm told that the geography there creates a natural amphitheater so that you can be heard speaking from mount to mount and in the valley below. As they began to possess the promised land, the people were reminded that their enjoyment of it depended upon obedience to the law of God. Obey it and they would be abundantly blessed. Disobey it and they would bring curses upon themselves. 
One commentator quipped that the Israelites could choose one of two spiritual addresses in the promised land. They could live at Mount Gerizim and be blessed, or they could live at Mount Ebal and be cursed. There's a sense in which this still applies to us. As New Testament believers, we are no longer under the death sentence of disobedience to God's law. The law does not condemn us because Jesus Christ kept it on our behalf. God's law cannot be kept by human beings. We always fall short and we become debtors, guilty under the law. And the, the uh, penalty is death. The wages of sin is death, eternal death and separation from God. That's the death sentence of the law. That's why I am all for posting the Ten Commandments everywhere. I just want people to know that they're there to show you that you cannot keep them because God, his standards are so high and so pure and so holy, all of us fall short. And we are driven to our need for a sacrifice and a savior. And that person is Jesus Christ. And so when the Lord died, he died as a perfect sacrifice. He perfectly kept the law. He fulfilled every point of the law. He died in our place so that we no longer have the condemnation of the law. That doesn't mean that we're done with God's law. As Alan Redpath points out in his commentary on Joshua, though we have been delivered from the sentence of God's law, we have not been released from its standards. God hasn't changed his standards. God never lowers his standards. And so we are still expected to keep the law and we are empowered to do so. Because as Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit into our hearts. He comes to indwell us and he writes God's law on our hearts. And when we yield to his influence, we find ourselves keeping the law. We don't set out in the morning to try to keep. Oh, I'm going to try to keep all the law. I'm going to try really hard. As we just walk in the spirit, we find at the end of the day, oh, I didn't covet. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't kill anybody, uh, you know, those kinds of and we figure out that I was enabled by God to keep his law. And that's where the word amen comes in. When Moses described this retreat in Deuteronomy 27, you read that all the people shall say amen, not just once, but over and over again. As a law was read, the people shouted amen, whether it was a blessing or a curse. They said amen. Now, they weren't getting Pentecostal. Well, they might have been, but this is more serious than that. Amen is a strong word, meaning so be it. It is really a word of commitment. And so when the law was being read and they said, amen, they were saying, that's the way it is. I agree with God. I'm committed to following God. When I say, amen, I am agreeing with the value and virtue of what is being said, and I am committing myself to it. As I said, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who empowers us to keep God's law and fulfill the commandments, not as a duty, but as a delight. Thus, we read God's word and purposefully determine to say amen to everything we find in it. Whether you do this or not, when you're reading through God's word and you read something in your spirit, you need to be saying amen. So be it. God, if this is how I'm to act and react as a, a, a a Christian, as a husband, as a child, as a person in the workplace, so be it. I will do it. I'm agreeing with God. Our obedience then empowered by the Holy Spirit is how we live out our commitment 
to be living sacrifice. So I'm on the altar, God's living sacrifice. I get into his word. He tells me what to do. I know that I can do it because of the Holy Spirit. And I have to say, I just say, amen. Is there something, some issue that God has been dealing with in your life? Find the solution in God's word and say, amen. Agree with God. Commit to yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit. It's not easy to say, amen. Study the characters of the Bible. At each step in their pilgrimage, there was a moment, moment after moment, actually, in which they must offer themselves as living sacrifices and say amen to God's will. We marvel when they do at how God works in and through them. We shake our heads when they refuse to say amen, knowing it will cost them intimacy with God and that it will set them back in their walk. When God called Abram, who would become Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham said, Amen. And he got up and he left. And then when he got to where God had sent him, God didn't tell him to go anywhere or to do anything. He just, that's as far as he wanted him to go at that point. But there was a famine in the land. And Abraham went down to Egypt on his own. And it cost him about 13 years of fellowship with God he ended up lying about his wife. He picked up a maid, a, hand, a maid servant down there for his wife that turned out to be trouble later on. It was altogether a bad move. And so we read that and we think, here's Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees. Amen. And then here he is not saying amen, you know, wondering, Lord, where's my food going to come from? And God had brought him to that place of famine to teach him something, to, to reveal himself to him. Do you think God didn't know that there was a famine in the land? He didn't get the bulletin? Oh, man, I didn't mean Ur, I didn't mean Bethel, I meant, you know, Ethel or something, you know, who knows? And, and so, you know, it, it's crazy. And so that's the point. We look at these people in the Bible and we think, wow, look at the, look at the faith of that guy. Look at, look at him agreeing with God. And then, oh, no, please, no, no, don't go down there. So it costs a whole nother chapter. I want to know what the lesson was here, you know, in the pilgrimage. We are those people today. We are God's Bible characters. Our lives seem far less dramatic or even significant. But from heaven's vantage point, God is working in and through us to complete the good work he has begun at salvation. Our amens are important to furthering our pilgrimage. Responsive reading is something congregations sometimes do in their services. You've probably been to a service with a responsive reading where the pastor or facilitator will read a verse and then the congregation will read the even number verses and you go back and forth through a psalm. Uh, we've done it once or twice over the years. It gets tough with all the modern Bible translations because if you don't have a published uh, translation, then it sounds, when the congregation reads, it sounds like you're speaking in tongues. You know, because you've got the New Living and you've got the ESV and you've got the Revised Standard and somebody's got the message. And, and there's always one guy still talking with the Amplified Bible. Because it, you know, it gives every possible definition of every word. It's like, you know, it's a Bible that's 20, you know, 20 pounds and stuff like that. And so very spiritual to have it. But anyway, uh, so we, you know, but you understand responsive reading. Responsive reading is uh, the word amen in our context today reminds me that my walk with the Lord is like one continuous responsive reading. I read. It's God speaking to me, really, when I read, because his word is uh, powerful and alive. 
And then because the word is alive, I respond. I respond to it by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's a good way of looking at the Christian life as a responsive reading. God speaks to me and then I respond to it, not by reading back to him, but by walking with him. A Christian who is on the altar and who purposes to say amen to God, that's a victorious Christian. If you are altar bound, then you're always looking up. God's will and God's way of accomplishing his will are your delight. Both his will and his way are discovered as you encounter Jesus in the Bible. A living sacrifice can't help but say amen to the things that he or she discovers in the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we appreciate the uh, simplicity of these images, Lord. All of us can understand the, the altar where sacrifice is consumed and where fellowship occurs. And we can see ourselves on that altar, spiritually speaking. Grateful that Jesus took our place in terms of the ultimate sacrifice, now able to be living sacrifices serving you. Lord, we want to be a people that say amen. When there is a time of famine or difficulty in our lives, we don't want to turn aside and walk in our own way, by our own strength, in our own will. We want to just wait on you and continue to say, yes, so be it. We agree with you, God. We're going to apply your word, no matter the cost. Uh, We want to be that people, Lord. I thank you for uh, our congregation here. They have a servant's heart. They've proved it over and over again, Lord. Uh, But we want to finish the race strong. Uh, We can't rest on the past. Paul said he wanted to forget the past, and he was certainly talking about his sinful past, but I think also, to a certain extent, things that had gone before, because we can't rest on that. We can build on it, but not rest on it. We want to be just as zealous today as we ever were serving you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. We'll be here to pray for you after the service if you require or desire prayer. We'd love to see you tonight in Lemoore if you have some time. Uh, Come on out and and support the work that we're doing there. Wednesday morning, the men meet in the cafe from 6.30 to 7.15 for a time of devotion. And then next Wednesday night, of course, we have our own Ignite service uh, in the fellowship hall. If uh, the Lord's been ministering to you about serving, uh, then sign up using the bulletin. As uh, Jake said, we still do have a few slots on the Friday night thing. If we get three or four more, we can be on like a four-week rotation. So you only have to serve once every four weeks out of the ten weeks. And um, it's just a blessing to be used of the Lord in that way. May God bless you. May he keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.